You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Creekside, good morning. Good morning. You all look happy and well-rested, and uh, it is good to see you on normal time, real time, God's time, as we said last week, but uh, good to see you. If this is your first time here with us, welcome. We're so glad to have you. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if it is your very first time with us, we'd love to give you a gift this morning, just a way of saying thanks for coming. That's a sippy cup or a tumbler or that other thing. And uh, any one of those is yours over at the info desk. That's our gift to you if it's your first time with us. Uh, if you have something that we can be praying about for you or you'd like more information about our church, there is a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out and then put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. One final uh, plug for community groups. You know, one thing we try to reiterate again and again here at Creekside is that church is not an event you attend. It's a family to whom you belong. And, And to experience that family, we need deep, intimate relationships with other believers. That's why we have community groups. If you're not in one, now's a great time to get in one. We have virtual ones. We have in-person groups, but all sorts of groups meet together, live life together, study the Bible. They're on mission, and I would encourage you just look in that bulletin and uh, see if one works for you. So let me me, uh, give you a hypothetical before we jump into James here. Uh, Imagine that tomorrow morning you run into an acquaintance. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a parent at your kid's school, maybe it's a friend. And a few weeks back, you had a, a sharp disagreement with this person. Things got a little heated. And now all of a sudden, uh, you run into them. Things have felt off between you two. You know there's sort of an elephant in the room. And they say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Okay, here's the question. When they say that, what is your gut reaction? Oh, no right? We know why people start sentences that way. Rarely does someone say, hey, can I talk to you for a second because I just want to encourage you. No, we know that that means I have a problem with you and we're going to talk about it now. Now, here's the question. Uh, In that situation, what is your gut response? For some of us, the gut response is Flee. Run. How can I avoid this conversation? Jeez, this is actually not a good time. I don't have a second. Got to go. Others of us think fight, attack. Oh, you need to talk to me for a second. What a coincidence, because I actually need to talk to you for actually a few seconds. I've got some things we need to chat about, right? In conflict, we have instinctive ways of responding, and depending on who you are, whatever that way of responding, it feels right. It feels like this is the best way to handle a tense situation. So so here's the question for us this morning. When you're in that tension, how does Jesus think you should respond? And here's the deeper question, how can I tell in that situation if my response is directed by him 
and not just by myself. So, so we're in this series on the New Testament letter of James, and, and as we've seen, James is all about being undivided in your devotion to Jesus. James is helping us connect Jesus' lordship to every aspect of our lives. And you might remember that at the end of chapter 1, James gives us these three tests where we can test our devotion to Jesus. And James says, if I am truly wholly devoted to Jesus, it will be seen in three areas. I'll be seen in the way I restrain my tongue, the way I remember the poor, and then the way I resist worldly influences. And in the remainder of the book, James goes on to expand on each of those. So we're looking at test number one today, restrain the tongue. We've been looking at it for the last few weeks, and that's what James expands on in chapter three. That's what James three is all about, restraining the tongue and letting Jesus bridle your tongue. And last week, my dad talked about the trouble with our tongue, and I love the image he used. He said, your tongue is a dog. It's a dog. Left to itself, what do dogs do? It will jump on you, it will growl, it will bark, and that's just what dogs do. That's just what our tongues do. They lash out. The tongue is going to tongue. So we need to put that dog on a leash. Here's the problem. We cannot leash the tongue. We can't tame the tongue. It is untamable. So why can't we tame the tongue? Well, the biblical answer is this, that my tongue is inextricably connected to my heart. According to James, our, our tongues are the fruit, but my heart, that's the root. And, and so why can't I change the fruit of my life? Well, it's because I can't, left to myself, change the root. Now, James didn't make that idea up. He got it from his older brother, Jesus. Remember what Jesus says in, in Matthew 12, talking to the Pharisees, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is talking to these religious leaders who are dead set against him, and Jesus says, your wicked words reveal Dead hearts, dead, wicked hearts, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ever had something slip out of your mouth? That, oh, that one was in my heart. You know, my kids and I, we had a great time trick-or-treating on Halloween. It was so good to, to do it again. But you know, one thing I no longer do, maybe I'll never do this again. I do not leave candy out for trick-or-treaters. I don't do it. And that's because a few years ago, I left out a bowl of candy. And I put up a sign, and it said, please take two. And, you know, I underlined two, hoping that, that maybe, just maybe, the kids would abide by my instructions. Well, I was naive, because when we came back to our house, not only was all the candy gone, the bowl was gone. Someone had just taken the bowl and ran. And I knew they ran because there was candy strewn all over the yard. It was like a crime scene. And I was so mad. And I remember picking up that candy and muttering under my breath, I hope you choke on that. 
that's a messed up thing to say, right? I don't actually want some 15-year-old to choke on candy. Costs like $8, right? Like, that's messed up. Now, when people say crazy stuff like that, what do they say? Oh, sorry, my tongue slipped. Slipped. I, I want to I suggest a new phrase, according to Jesus. We don't have slips of the tongue. We have spills of the tongue. It's a spill. It wasn't an accident. It was the release valve of your heart. Whatever our hearts are desiring, our mouths declare. It's the overflow of our lives, and that really highlights the problem with the tongue. Until my heart changes, my words will not. Now, here's the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus comes, he gives me a new heart with new desires that enables me to speak in new ways. And James calls that the wisdom from above. Here's the, the, the hopeful thing. It's so hopeful. As believers, we have this whole new way of talking and speaking in new ways that are actually Christ-like. But, but here's the problem. Even if I have a new heart as a believer, I still live in this old body with sinful habits that's, that's corrupted, and the gravitational pull of that is going to get me to speak the way I've always spoken. I hope you choke on that candy, right? So, so here's the question. How do I know in any given situation whether I'm thinking and speaking out of the wisdom from above or the wisdom from below? How do I know if my words are directed by Jesus' wisdom or just my own thinking about what's best in this situation? And, and we need to think about this, particularly in those crucial conversations when we're in conflict or disagreement and our words matter most. Well, James gives us a great checklist in this passage to see whether my words are, are heavenly or hellish. And so that's where we're going today. We're looking at the wisdom from below, the wisdom from above, how to figure out which wisdom you're operating out of when you're opening your mouth. Ultimately, we need a heart check before we need a tongue check here. But before we look at each of these, let's ask Jesus for his help and his guidance. So God, as we go to your word now, um, Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. Apart from your spirit and your word, we cannot be wise, Jesus. And oh, we just need your wisdom when it comes to how we talk. So teach us to have tongues directed by you, Jesus, that sound like you, for your sake. Amen. So how do you know? How do you know if your, your words are directed by God's Spirit or by your own flesh? Well, let's start with what wisdom does not look like. What wisdom from God does not look like. And, and you'll notice I put wisdom in quotations because, as we'll see, this is no wisdom at all. James starts like this with what it doesn't look like. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Step forward. Who is it? Well, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the, quote, meekness of wisdom. As we saw last week, James 3 is actually about qualifications for leadership. James is talking to people who really think they should be leading the church. You ever been in a situation where you thought you should be a leader? Just, you know, if my ideas were implemented, this would all go well. James is like, great. Well, if that's you, step forward. 
Uh, these readers that James is talking to, these are people who considered themselves wise and understanding. Uh, they, they were Jewish Christians, Jewish background believers, steeped in the Old Testament, biblically literate people. They knew their Bibles backwards and forwards, and so they get saved, they come to know Jesus, they come in the church, they go, well, of course I should be a leader, I know a lot. James says, okay, well, if you're really wise and understanding, it will be revealed in your character. I remember back in chapter 2, James says that faith without works is dead, and here he's making a similar point. He's saying that wisdom apart from conduct is useless. You see, in the Bible, wisdom is not theoretical. It's practical. It's skill in living. And those with deep insight into the Bible show that insight by their conduct. And specifically, James says, by their meekness. And that's a word we'll return to a little bit later. But James' point here is that if you're looking for a leader in the church, it's a person's Ability to relate wisely with people, that demonstrates their readiness for leadership. And that's so striking, right? Because we think about qualifications for leadership today. You want to get the best communicator, the most charismatic person, the most assertive, the most visionary. And then you look at biblical qualifications for leadership, but they don't mention any of those. In fact, you go to 1 Timothy 3, where, where Paul lays out the qualifications for elders, for those with, with teaching authority in the church. He gives this huge list of qualifications, and he doesn't say anything about a person's communication skills or their charisma. He doesn't even talk about their knowledge of the Bible. He assumes they know their Bibles. But everything is related to what? Character. It's all about character, and specifically how that person relates to others in their most intimate relationships. And Paul would say, that's what qualifies a person, their self-control, their gentleness, their integrity, their ability to navigate relationships well. And James says the exact same thing here, that, that if you're going to be in any position of leadership, you know, you need to know how to deal with people, you need to know how to resolve issues between people wisely. And James would say, if you're not that, you're not ready to lead no matter how smart and competent you are. You don't have God's wisdom. And this gets us back to the heart of this point. What does wisdom from above not look like? What does wisdom from below look like? What responses are not from God? Well, James tells us here. He says, but, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. If your motivations are off, James says, it doesn't matter how much you know, you're going to make a train wreck out of everything. Selfish ambition, jealousy. This is the wisdom from below. I want to look at the essence of this wisdom the source of this wisdom, and then the effect of this wisdom. First, the essence of the wisdom below. False wisdom. What is the essence of this wisdom that does not come from God? Well, James says it's motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He uses those words twice, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy is uh, it's zeal filled with malice. Zeal filled with Malice. It is a bitter passion, right? It's that I need to be right, I need to be noticed, I need to win, 
And it's that corresponding feeling of fury when that doesn't happen. You can't rejoice when someone else makes a good point. You can't rejoice when someone else gets a promotion or when someone else succeeds. You can't be happy for anyone but you because the world is only right when you are winning. That's it. That's bitter jealousy. And it goes hand in hand with the next attribute, which is selfish ambition. That word refers to partisanship, actually. In the ancient world, the the word was used of politicians who would say or do anything to promote their party or their ideas or win, unlike politicians today. But back then, they, they used to do that. They would do anything to promote their party or their ideas. It's this win at all costs attitude that says, I know what has to happen, I know the end, and now we just need to find whatever means are necessary to get to that end. James says this, that if you claim to be wise but exhibit that attitude, you're going to burn things down. doesn't matter how smart you are, how knowledgeable you are, if that's your attitude that I have to win, I have to get my way at all costs, then there's a big problem. That kind of wisdom doesn't come from God. So where does it come from? Well, James tells us, and that gets to the source. James doesn't mince words, does he? Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. In other words, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where that kind of wisdom comes from. Earthly means earthbound. James says it's a wisdom that doesn't take heaven's perspective into account. In this kind of wisdom, there's no thought of God. It's the best kind of reasoning that the world alienated from God comes up with. And that's why the wisdom of the world sounds so repetitive. They just keep saying the same thing. Look out for yourself. Do what's best for you. Figure out what you want and go get it. Life will only work best when you get your way. That has always been the wisdom of the world. It doesn't change because that's what wisdom cut off from heaven sounds like. Life works best when I get what I want, period. Second, James says it is unspiritual. The Greek word is psychikos. Whenever that word appears in the New Testament, it denotes something that does not come from God's spirit, something that that just originates from the fallen human psyche, from the flesh. Well, that's what Scripture would call it. It's that fallen desire within us that just cries out, me, me, right? The comedian Brian Regan, the me monster, me. It's about me. And ultimately, James says, this kind of wisdom is demonic. It's inspired by Satan. You might remember back in verse 5 of chapter 3, James says that the tongue is set on fire with the flames of hell. And now we see why. It's because we have demonic, hellish ideas in our hearts, and they spill out in our tongues And it's like the fire of hell shooting out. Demonic ideas. Because who was the first person to think that I must get my way at any cost? It's Satan. Whether it's lying, manipulating, however I need to get it, I will get it. That's a demonic way of thinking. And that's ultimately the progenitor of this way of thinking. This me first at all costs. That's the source. The world, the flesh, the devil. What's the effect of such wisdom? James says it is chaos, disorder. That word disorder, it's the same one James used back in chapter 1 when he said that a double-minded person is unstable, tossed by the wind back and forth, every vile practice. James is saying this, that if you want to destroy a community, just put people in charge who are smart but filled with 
jealousy, selfish ambition. Because if this person has a win-at-all-cost attitudes, then everyone around them who disagrees has to have a win-at-all-cost attitudes now. Now everyone's fighting and everything's a war. And there could be no trust, no real connection. It's just self-protective. I need to protect my space, what I want, and everything's a fight. And there's no stability. There's no peace. Now, we could come up with examples for the rest of the morning from church, from business, from politics, of people who act this way and, and, and the, the fallout in human community. But, but here's the point, and it's this. You know, when I don't get my way, when I'm in conflict, when I have a disagreement, there is a way that seems right to me and it feels wise. I need to get what I want. That's my gut reaction, and it feels good. It feels right, and yet it'll burn the world down. It's incredibly destructive. And so how do I know when I'm acting out of false wisdom? When I'm just leaning on my own understanding and not listening to Jesus? Well, I've got a lot of questions for you this morning. In fact, I hope you have a smartphone out and you're actually paying attention with your smartphone, or you have a pen and paper, because I got nine questions for you this morning, okay? Got nine. So get ready to take some notes. But here are the first three. If you're concerned that that you're responding out of the flesh, here are questions to ask. First, the motivating question. If you're in conflict and you're just in intractable conflict, a question to ask is, why do I need to win? What about this thing is so important that I need to win? What's the outcome, right? I think about this with my kids a lot. Because I want them to behave. Do you know why I need to win in that? Because it makes my life easier. (laughs) And so I've got to win. That's that's actually a selfish reason to win, isn't it? It's not about their formation. It's not about them loving Jesus. I just need to win. Because they'll make my life. So so ask yourself when you're in it, why do I need to win? The, The next question is, who am I listening to? Because if all of your sources of wisdom are just the world, are people who affirm what you already think, there could be a blind spot here. Here's the thing. Often your good friends, when you go to them and you're frustrated about an issue and you think you're right, you know what they're going to tell you? Yeah, you're right. You should be frustrated, right? It, it takes a godly person to go, well, what does the scripture say about that? Have you thought about that? Who are you listening to? Another question to ask is just, how am I impacting others? You know, if your life is filled with intractable conflict and you feel like there's lots of relationships in your life that are high friction, high disagreement, hear me out. It could be. It could be that there are lots of high drama people around you. They just love drama. And that's true. Some of us are in families that just love drama. It's like things aren't quite okay until there's some drama. That could be true. It could also be true that, you know, if, if you don't know who the high drama person is in your, in your family, you might be, might. I'm just saying. If the common denominator in all of your conflicts, well, it is you, and there's a lot of them. You might have to ask, well, then why is that? If I'm in lots of high conflict relationships, are there patterns that I see in myself that are contributing to that? Okay, 
Those are the, the first questions to ask yourself. But, but here's, the, here's the bad news. You know, left to ourselves, this is just the operating system of the human heart. This is what we will operate out of when we don't get our way, when we're hurt, when we're offended, when we're slighted, when we disagree, is I need to win, I need to be recognized, I need to be noticed. The world will reinforce that thinking. The devil loves that kind of thinking. He'll be cheering us on. And so how do we switch from operating out of that wisdom to a different wisdom? Because here's the good news. If you're a believer in Jesus, there's this other wisdom that God gives you to operate out of. And, and it's not like you have to go seek it out. Actually, God gives it to you as a gift. You just seek him. And, and he gives you a new mind and a new way of resolving conflict that doesn't burn the world down. In fact, as we'll see, it produces the the peaceful fruit of righteousness, peace, and right relationships. Doesn't that sound great? Well, well, how do you know if you're being directed by that wisdom? Well, James tells us how you know if the wisdom you're operating out of is from God. Here's the wisdom God graciously offers. He says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Back in James 1, James says that every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above, from the Father of lights. See, one of God's great gifts to us is to make us wise people. And it's not an achievement of ours, it's actually a gift he gives us. All wisdom is from God. God makes us wise. That's why James said at the beginning of James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask, ask God, and he will give it graciously without reproach. God wants to make us wise people, and that's actually one of the reasons he gives us his own spirit, to make us wise. It's striking, you know, if you look at this list here and the different attributes of wisdom and the wisdom from above, Go compare that list to what Paul says about the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, through 23. And there's all of these similarities between the wisdom from above and the Holy Spirit about peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All these things, they, they overlap. And in fact, throughout the Scriptures, there, there's often a close connection between the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God. So what's the connection between those two? Well, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that when we get the Spirit of God... We get spiritual, capital S, wisdom. We have a new way of looking at the world. In fact, Paul calls it the mind of Christ. So when you get the Spirit of God, whose mind do you get? Christ's. You get a heart that is able to think like Christ and reason like Christ and, and, and solve conflicts like Christ did. And as we immerse ourselves in the word that the Spirit inspired... He reshapes us to think like Jesus and to have reactions to situations that look more like Jesus and less like our gut. Does that make sense? So, so now the question to ask is this, how do I know? How do I know if I'm being directed by God's Spirit in the way I'm engaging in conflict? Well, look at this list. These are the checkpoints to ask yourself if you're in any conflict. Here are questions to ask. First is this. The wisdom from above is first what? Pure. This is the most important, the heading for all the rest, pure. Pure means uncontaminated, innocent, blameless, 
single-minded. Right? This is the theme of James, wholehearted devotion to Jesus. The idea here is that the wisdom from above has a single-mindedness toward pleasing who? God. That's the purity of the motives. That's what we see in Jesus, isn't it? He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative, but only what the Father gives me to do. I, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Jesus, in every situation, asked what would be most pleasing to God in this situation. And, and so this is what we have to ask ourselves if you're in the midst of disagreement or conflict. Who am I trying to please? That's the first question and the crucial one. Whose opinion matters most? Because in conflict, it really doesn't matter ultimately what you want. And it really doesn't matter ultimately what the other person wants. The thing that matters and should shape everything is what who wants? What God wants. And so I should be operating not out of pleasing myself. I shouldn't be operating just to please the other person, right? That's not pure either. A pure motive is to say, what does God want in this situation? By the way, if you're in a marital conflict, that's a great question to ask. It's a great question to ask to be like, Jesus is sitting right between us and he actually wants things for our relationship. Why don't we both ask the third party what he wants right now? Do you think that would reframe a disagreement a little bit? Pure. Next, it is peaceable. The wisdom from above is then peaceable. Peaceable means a bias towards peace. It means loving peace. It means non-combative. It means we don't love drama. It means we don't look to pick fights. In fact, here's what it means to be peaceable. It means this, that in my life, there are hills. And these are hills I will die on. Okay? And I will die on those hills. I don't have a mountain range of hills. I have a few hills. And they're very clear. And I will fight for those convictions, and I will not yield, but the more hills you pick, the more wars you're going to fight, the more deaths you're going to die, the more relationships you're going to kill, because if every conviction is a hill to die on, I'm going to be in a lot of wars, aren't I? We talk about this with our kids all the time and their disagreements. I'm like, is this going to be the hill to die on today? This one. Is it worth the fight? Is it worth the fight? Who's holding the remote right now? Y'all are watching the same thing. You've already agreed to it. Is it worth it? Is the emotional energy you're about to invest over the next... We have to ask ourselves that in any situation. Is it actually worth the fight? Right? Is... Or would giving in, being yielding, produce a peaceful result that I can live with, where I don't compromise my values? And if it does, then it might not be worth the fight. It's peaceable. Next, it is gentle. Gentle means forbearing, kind, tolerant. That means even if you disagree with the person and are communicating it, you're bearing with them, you are not lashing out at them, you are calmly, patiently communicating what you think, right? Am I showing restraint is the question to ask. Can I show restraint in the midst of this disagreement? Because for me, here's my rule. The minute I lose my temper, I've lost any chance of making peace. And so I have to step back and go, you know what? I need to be calmer before I can have this conversation, right? 
And y'all know this, if you're a parent, like, you know the most counterproductive thing to do is to yell calm down at your kids. Everybody calm down, right? It's just... No one's going to be calm if you're not. And if I can't talk about it with restraint and clear words, I'm not ready to talk. In fact, that's one of my rules for my kids is that I, I try to always remember you discipline with words and actions, you don't discipline with emotions. It's words, clear words, planned words. It's actions that are clear and specific. It is not emotions. Because otherwise, if you're in a relationship with someone who you're frustrated with, it's just like you're holding them emotionally hostage all the time, right? You can just have this sense of, of disdain and frustration and emotional aloofness, and there's a power in that, isn't it? It's a way to make people please you, do what you want. That's not being gentle. That, that, that's, that's refusing to resolve. Once something's resolved, the emotional atmosphere needs to change. There might be grief, there might be sadness, but there can't be emotional punishment. Can't hold people emotionally hostage. Next, open to reason. The wisdom from above is open to reason. It means wielding to yield, willing to yield, accommodating. A question to ask is, can I actually represent the other person's point of view in a way they would accept? <laughs> what does the other person actually think? You know, I've recognized something, that often the solution in situations is going to be a combination of both people's perspectives. I come in thinking, I'll come into staff meetings all the time thinking, here's what we need to do. And then the staff will be like, but, 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 but. And we have to talk about it for longer than I wanted to talk about it. But you know what? Inevitably, in that process, we come up with a better solution than I would have come up with on my own that takes more perspectives into account. And so do I actually know the other people's point of view and can I actually articulate it in a way that they would accept? Right? Often in a disagreement, my posture has to be, there's a solution and we need to talk to find it rather than I am right and I need to win. <laughs> See, it'll change your posture going in. Next one is mercy. The wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. In other words, it is marked by deeds of kindness and consideration toward others. Here's something that helps me if I'm in conflict or disagreement with someone. What do I want for the other person? Do I want their joy? Do I want their good in Christ? What do I want for them in this? Because ultimately, the solution we come up with, it should be of benefit to them too. It shouldn't just be me winning and them losing. <laughs> but if it's pleasing to the Lord what we come up with, then it should be of benefit to them, and that should be reflected in my heart. That, that I want to win this person, and I want what's best for this person. Man, when you are rebuking someone in particular, this one is so important to remember that I am doing it because I honestly believe this is what's best for them in Jesus. And the most powerful rebukes I've ever received have all had that tenor to them. I remember Dan Reeder, my freshman year of college, right? I was, I was an insufferable person. I was arrogant, um, and that's because I knew the Bible really well, and I was right about everything. And everyone else was wrong, and they needed to know. And I was their gift to tell them. <laughs> and, 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 and Dan said to me, he goes, Jeff, you've got a brilliant mind, but you are arrogant. And... And you could be of great use to the kingdom, but arrogant people are not. That stuck with me. But that was merciful. 
for him to do that. Because he was speaking something into me that it's not that I just want you to be embarrassed or ashamed. I actually think you could be incredibly useful to God if you saw this thing. And so it was, thank you. Thank you for showing me that. Impartial and sincere. And those two go together. That's the last one. Impartial is undivided, trustworthy, transparent. Sincere is without hypocrisy. Go back. These two go together. Here's what that means. If you're really pure and speaking to please God, that means this, that there, there's not flattery in your words and also there's not passive resistance where you show one face to the person you're frustrated with and then go away and secretly harbor resentment at them. Right? That I try to communicate accurately what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, do it in a way that's helpful to the person, that's pleasing to God, but I don't falsify what I'm thinking or feeling and sow friction in the relationship. And we've all been there, right? Anybody here a pleaser, a people pleaser? I am an inveterate people pleaser. Oh, I want you to be happy with me. I really do. And the problem with being a pleaser is often you can be divided. You can have one face with people, even if you have a frustration with them and run away and harbor it. But the wisdom from above won't let you do that, right? Jesus is the most gentle, kind man who ever lived. Jesus was not afraid to be plain in his speech when he had a concern with people, right? And so the question to ask is, am I speaking out of conviction or out of convenience? And here's the thing. If I really am just harboring resentment toward a person or if I talk about a person in a way behind their back that I wouldn't talk in their face, it means that I'm not passing this test. I need to go figure out a way to talk to the person about my concern. I mean, there's two options biblically, right, if you have a concern with someone. Either you overlook it, and there are times, right, there's just things to just let go. Overlook an offense, or you have to go address it. That's it. Harboring resentment passively is not an option. That's not one of the ones Scripture gives us. Overlook, and if I can't overlook, I have to find a way to graciously talk about it. Okay, so that's hard to do, isn't it? That was a lot of checklists. And, and, and I hope what you can see is that actually making peace takes a lot of work. Doesn't it? Look at the contrast here. Wisdom from below, self-advancing and bitter. Wisdom from above, humble, pure, peaceful. One comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. One comes from heaven. The effect of one is just chaos and evil. The effect of the other one is peace and right relationships. The truth was spoken, sin was confronted, and there was gentleness and kindness, and true peace was made. It wasn't peace-breaking or peace-faking. It was peace-making. That's hard, and I love the images James uses. He says it is a harvest of peace. Right, peacemaking is farming. Farming is work. It is plowing, sowing, waiting for rain, going back, tending to crops, but eventually what do you get? You get flourishing. You get abundance in community. The wisdom from below is what? A forest fire. (laughs) It's really easy to react that way, and it quickly burns things down. It takes time to be this kind of community, and that's why we need meekness. It's going to take work. 
This is the slower, harder way to respond like Jesus in situations. Isn't that why James says, be what to anger? Slow, slow to anger, slow to speak. I got some questions I need to ask myself before I engage this or I'm going to burn things down. I need to figure out what God thinks about this. I need to get my own ego out of the way and just see what would be pleasing to God in this situation. It takes time. Meekness means sitting under authority. That's the meekness of wisdom that that when I go into situations, and this is what I try to do more and more, I'm saying, God, I don't know the answer in this situation, but I want to find out with you. Not, I know what needs to happen. But God, I don't know. And so I ask for wisdom, show me how to act wisely and do this. Does that make sense? That's the difference. And ultimately, we know that this is the way to make peace because this is the way God makes peace with us, isn't it? The, the wisdom from above is what? Jesus comes down and speaks the hardest truth imaginable to us. <laughs> that the problem is who? You. That you're a sinner. That you're in rebellion against God. That you're going to hell. That, that the problem is worse than you thought. And yet Jesus says what? You're more loved than you could imagine. In fact, you're so loved that I would die for you. It was Total truth and total grace. That's the wisdom Jesus gives us, and he makes us gospel people who really can respond to others with both grace and truth and make peace. But we need his help, don't we? Oh, we need his help. It's going to require humility before him. And that's what the gospel does. It humbles us to say, Jesus, I don't have the answers, but you do. Show me what to do. So let's pray. So Jesus, teach us to be meek people who respond to you. Uh, Lord, who are slow to react in situations, but to first think, okay, what's really going on? What would be pleasing to you? What would be beneficial to this person? What truth needs to be said? What doesn't need to be said? Where are the hills to die on? Would we think like that, Jesus? And will we be people known for making peace, God. Not faking it, not breaking it, but making it. For your sake, Jesus, for you are the great peacemaker. Pray it in your name, amen.